The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, markets, media and tech, creatives, authors, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're allowed into the gates of a place like Princeton, but you can't eat You can't break bread. I mean, it's really community breaking bread. You cannot break bread with a whole bunch of people who think you're not good enough for them, don't see you as a social peer. And that's deeply, deeply harmful. That wounds the psyche. On deck, Julia Lee, author of the memoir Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America, on overachieving and assimilation amid immigrant trauma. And Mitchell Kaplan of Books and Books in the Miami Book Fair, on resisting the book bans of today's culture wars, a special extended episode on podcast. So do stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. Follow, subscribe, and rate us at linkfulldradio.com. We are on all the social media channels at handle Full D Radio. Joining me from Los Angeles is Julia Lee. She is a professor of English at Loyola Marymount University, where she teaches African-American and Caribbean literature. The book is Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America, a memoir, and it is a page turner. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Robin. And this is uh, reminding everyone that this is an extended episode on pod. Alas, on public radio, we only get about 52 minutes. So if you want to hear the entirety of this and my interview with Mitchell Kaplan of the Miami Book Fair on, on you know, biting back against book bans, you do have to catch us on pod. But stay tuned for that. Julia, where do I even start with you? We have in common <laughs> the immigrant experience in this country the immigrant trauma, the transmogrification of the trauma. It took us through high school and into Princeton where we met. I'm struck, though, going back to this scene that you illustrate with your dad and the liquor store in Los Angeles and kind of the skepticism, but the symbiosis between the African-American and the Korean-American communities, which we did see in sharp relief in, in 92 during the riots. But take me back to when your dad and mom first got here. Yeah, so my parents are Korean immigrants, and they moved to the United States in 1970, met here, got married, and then moved to Los Angeles. And, you know, coming here, my father, he was undocumented, he overstayed his student visa. And so, you know, he lacked education, he lacked language skills, he lacked access. And so one of the things that a lot of immigrant Americans do is they open their own business, because then they can work for themselves and sort of scrape by And so my parents purchased a liquor store in Inglewood, which is a predominantly black neighborhood in Los Angeles. And this was really, you know, their first time interacting so closely with the black community. Most of their customers were black, their employees were black, the neighboring shopkeepers were black. um, And, you know, on the reciprocal end, a lot of their black neighbors, this was their first time interacting so closely with Korean Americans. You know, and the relationship was cordial in many ways, that they became friends, they were customers, patrons, et cetera, but that it was also a fraught relationship in that my parents, you know, their 
store was robbed three times during their year of owning that store. And so much of it was about, you know, these immigrant communities and communities of color being thrust to the margins and forced to, you know, fight one another for diminished amounts of resources. And really, it's not, we shouldn't focus so much on those interracial relationships as so much as the system of white supremacy that makes it so that these communities have reduced opportunities and are forced to fight for resources on the margins. I think that really is the story of my parents' liquor store and um, their time in Inglewood, which, you know, subsequently they purchased a Pioneer Chicken, which is a fried chicken restaurant, also in a predominantly um, a neighborhood of color, Black, Latino, Asian. And again, this is where they were relegated as immigrants without access. They served communities of color and oftentimes came into conflict. You know, there's an early memory that you share because your parents, uh, like my parents and many immigrant parents, did want to emphasize achievement and education as, as a way out. You know, you, you write, I knew I had always resisted speaking Korean at home and attending Korean language school, desperate to assimilate into my white American school and neighborhood. But you were also, you know, damned if you do, damned if you do, because you, you wrote, now I found myself accused of being too Americanized, too white, not Korean enough. And this was a central driving tension. You could end up in these white elite type schools destined for prep school with with or without financial aid. I know your parents struggled to get you this kind of educational catapult. You and your sister, they worked Pioneer Chicken. It was a fried chicken place after the liquor store era. But it seems like you were always exoticized along this, that you were a curiosity, that you weren't really one of the students over there, that they wanted to keep you in a lane. Even I'm struck by this time when there was a casting call for I think some sitcom in the 80s, and they wanted you to be this very malleable, what was it, a Vietnamese girl? Yeah, Vietnamese <laughs> boat child. Yeah. Well, talk to me about the cross currents, because yes, you know you are Korean American, you know your parents, you know this culture, you know the food, you know all of the pratfalls with you know, taking your own lunch to school or bringing people home or having the certain fashions and not having certain things that other people did, and yet you were being pushed to assimilate, and you couldn't really get there as much as your parents wanted you to or the community wanted you to. Right. I mean, I think so much of this is very much in common with other immigrant community experiences is about trying to fit in and trying to assimilate. Oftentimes, it's really into whiteness. It's white Americanness. So, you know, that's all about speaking English without an accent and, you know, being able to dress the right way and, you know, socialize the right way and, you know, get as close to whiteness, which, you know, is something that Asian Americans benefit from is this allowance of some white adjacency. And yet, you know, you can never get fully there. It's kind of like you can get close, but you will never be fully American. You will never be fully white because, you know, my face is Asian and I will always be seen as different. And so, you know, it is one of the kind of sadnesses or the melancholy that face so many members of communities of color is that we're allowed some access, but not full access, that we're proximate to whiteness or close to whiteness, but we can never fully get there. One of my memories is of, you know, wanting a Cabbage Patch Kid and not wanting a black Cabbage Patch Kid because I knew that black was on the very bottom of the racial hierarchy. And I wanted an Asian Cabbage Patch Kid, but there were none. And so it was sort of like I was rendered invisible and the best I could do was assimilate into whiteness. You know, I was uh, I was at the corner of Western and Olympic at the turn of the century. And I mean, it's just so glossy right now. We're talking about Koreatown in Los Angeles. The restaurants, the office spaces, the catapulting generally of South Korean 
culture. It's still classified as an emerging market, but if you think about Samsung, Hyundai, LG, all these things, it's really it's really an economic success story going from frontier market and, and the depths of developing market um, in the middle of the century and around the Korean War to being one of the preeminent economies on the planet. And also that that wealth effect in places like Los Angeles or Long Island or the mid-Atlantic. But to go there, you also have to remember what happened in 1992 with the uh, riots. I mean, well before George Floyd, there were the Rodney King riots. People might forget about it because it was 31 years ago. But tell us what you remember from that scene, because in the national imagination, it certainly pitted, unfortunately, Korean shop owners against rioters, largely of color. Yeah, no, it, it's funny. I was just in Koreatown the other day. I was having Korean barbecue with a friend, and it has transformed. It's become this very hip, gentrified area with luxury condominiums and fancy restaurants and bars and clubs. And, you know, it's easy to look at that and think, oh, this is a success, a success story. You know, my own daughter, she's 13 and she loves K-pop and collects the albums and wants to go to K-Town and to the mall to buy stuff. And I have to constantly tell her, oh my gosh, you know, you're so lucky because it's cool to be Korean now, whereas when I was growing up, it was certainly not very cool to be Korean, you know, and Koreans migrated to K-Town because that was a depressed area where they could afford to open stores and restaurants because it was falling apart. It was run down. And, you know, what I tell my daughter and what I tell other people who associate Koreanness now with the glossy, the wealthy, the fancy and pretty is that, you know, it's cool to be Korean until it's not cool to be Korean. You know, it's cool to like the culture and the food until, you know, it's not cool because somebody hate crimed you because of the way you look. So I want people to remember that this is not a costume that many of us can just put on and take off when it's inconvenient. I mean, K-Town was one of the epicenters of the rioting that occurred and the looting that occurred during the LA uprising. You know, I remember seeing swap meets on fire. I remember seeing gas stations on fire and driving through the neighborhood on the way home and being terrified. You know, my parents at that point did own a Pioneer Chicken, and it was located also in one of the areas of looting. Um, it was south of LA in Hawthorne. And one of the things I discovered when talking to my mom, I was interviewing her for this book, and one of the things she had kept a secret from me for more than 30 years is the fact that her business, our business, that fried chicken store had also been set on flames during the riots. I mean, you know, they received a phone call at four in the morning from the police department because um, somebody had set a trash can on fire outside of their restaurant and it had blown out the windows and the whole place was trashed and fire department came and hosed it down. And my parents left the house at four in the morning, didn't wake us up went, cleaned up the mess, and then came back home filthy and exhausted and never told us. And when I asked my mother why, her response to me was that we didn't want to give you fear. We wanted to protect you from all that. But, you know, she couldn't protect me because I was watching it on television. And, you know, I knew that part of the reason that the LA uprising had occurred was because of the shooting of Latasha Harlins, a 15-year-old black girl who went into a Korean-owned liquor store and wanted to buy a bottle of orange juice. And Soon Ja Du, who's the Korean shopkeeper, shot her in the back and killed her. And, you know, and then later she was given a slap on the wrist. She got no jail time, no prison time. She got a small fine. 
And this enraged the Black community, understandably, because it showed you that the worth of a Black life was nothing. And I remember feeling so conflicted over this because this was one of the reasons for the outburst of, you know, Black-Korean conflict that Mm. was associated with the LA uprising. And yet, you know, I felt so much sympathy for somebody like Latasha Harlins because you know, I was 15. I knew what it was like to be racially profiled and to struggle against that. And But at the same time, I was also protected because my face is Asian. I did not face the same kind of racial discrimination and abuse that a black girl did. And meanwhile, you know, I looked at Sunja Du and she was the same age as my mom and looks like my mom. And I thought what she had done was repulsive and reprehensible. And yet she looks just like my mom and I could see my own mom doing something like that because my mother also lived under so much racialized fear and anxiety and paranoia. And I remember when Latasha Harlins, when Sunja Du was given probation. And even I, I'll, I'll never forget from this book, I guess you're a high schooler and you and your sister having an argument at the dinner table over, I guess your mother was rationing noodles and you launched a fork across the table and it split her forehead. And that's something that, I mean, that's a through line in the book. But having met you at college, you know, we all we all code switched in a certain way. We all showed up there. Um, and, and I'm going to get to Princeton because it's such an important part of this book for both of us. But you could largely camouflage that. I mean, by the time you were applying to college, I don't know if it was an an escape, it was a capitulation, because at the same time, you were validating your mom's idea that she wanted you to attend a predominantly white institution where you could, quote, more successfully be recognized for yourself, not your race. You cite at the time UCLA, which is an elite school, was known and is probably still known as the, quote, University of Caucasians lost among Asians. Right. You close out that chapter saying that you really wanted to apply as far away from pos- as possible from home. And, and you, you did. And you went to Princeton on financial aid. Tell me about that. Tell me about the thought process behind it, getting there. Were your parents proud? In my case, I I thought I was kind of vindicating my parents for their trauma, for everything that they did, including and especially bringing me slices of fruit and knocking on the door when I was studying. I mean, there was so much that we had in common with this book. Right. You know, I think about just the daily sacrifices that my parents made in order to get me to a place like Princeton. And it was their single-minded objective. I mean, they, you know, they put themselves second and last so that my sister and I could have the privileges and the resources and all of this access. And I really did think, you know, when I was applying to college, that it was vindication, you know, that getting into one of these elite schools was proof that the model minority myth worked or that the American dream worked and that, you know, my parents could come here basically impoverished and work their way out of poverty and and make it so that their kid could go to this fancy Ivy League and, you know, have a life of security and comfort. And it was a real loss of innocence or a real shock when I went to Princeton and I thought, okay, this is how the fairy tale is supposed to go. I'm supposed to be happy here and to thrive. And then to realize, oh my gosh, this place is not at all like I what I imagined that yes it has all this access and abundance and yet I feel incredibly marginalized and like I don't belong here and you know I tried to do what I was trained to do I tried to force myself into this world that really did not want me that really saw me as an outsider and I just thought no but my parents are suffering at home you know I'm on financial aid I can't break their hearts by telling them you know what 
this might not work out for me. Um, they've suffered so much more than I have. They're suffering through continuing to deal with this struggling restaurant. And so I just sucked it up. I plunged into activities. I plunged into my classes. And I really, it took a, a toll on my mental health because I, I wasn't just doing it for myself. I felt the weight of my parents and my ancestors and everybody else who had sacrificed to get me there. It just, I, I never felt quite enough. And then overachievement became my antidote to those feelings of inadequacy. Um, I really thought, okay, I have to believe the meritocracy works. I have to believe that, you know, my parents' sacrifices were worthwhile and therefore I will do mm. anything to keep that fantasy alive, even if it means deluding myself or brainwashing myself or, you know, suffering quietly and without any outlet. I mean, one of the things about Princeton is that, you know, despite the fact that it is supposed to be, you know, such an amazing elite space is that you go there and you realize there are lots of people who come from very privileged backgrounds and for whom a place like Princeton is not, you know, it's it's kind of an entitlement. It's not a privilege. You know, I went there, I was on financial aid and I immediately felt like, oh my gosh, this is bizarre because everybody here seems rich. And in fact, that's that's upheld by statistics. Well, we are 25 years removed from graduation, and I keep thinking back. It's like yesterday, that freshman year, the shock of getting there. For me personally, from a big public school in Miami on heavy financial aid, I overinvested myself in AP courses and accomplishment. I gave up my teens to see where I could get into college. I wanted to go here. What I was struck by, and in reading this book, is how immediately kind of it wasn't particularly academic. It wasn't so much a meritocracy when you got there. In fact, there was a lot in terms of class that was preordained. A lot of these people knew one another from St. Paul's, Andover, Exeter, Groton, the top private schools, a lot of that. And I don't think that the exclusivity was codified or the racism was codified. It just was a certain way. There was a certain look. There was a certain, I mean, I noticed it was inversely proportional. The people who were some of the wealthiest would dress in the most beaten down Patagonias and um, you 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 knew that the lacrosse guys were the ones that that certain women would want to date, and more more than anything else, I think going there, I just felt invisible, much more so than I did in high school, and a much more diverse community. The invisibility of that, and the 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 lack of kind of finding my own people, is reading this book. I think back to trying to square that with the the idea of escape or validating my parents and their struggle, and it's very much something that we have in common. Right. I mean, I remember just being floored when I got into Princeton. And then I, I thought that coming from a place like LA, you know, big metropolis, I, you know, I'm urbane. I went to a private school, so I know how to deal with these rich kids. And it was such, I mean, a shock to my system to go to the East Coast where it was an even more rarefied and elitist world. I mean, you know, I had vaguely known of boarding schools, probably from reading F. Scott Fitzgerald novels in high school, but suddenly you have these living, you know, F. Scott Fitzgeralds, probably some of them related to him. And, you know, they all grew up in the same kind of communities and dressed a certain way. And suddenly it's like, wow, for these people, Princeton is not a privilege. It's an entitlement. It's like their fathers and their grandfathers and sometimes their great grandfathers went there and sometimes their names were on buildings. And there was such a casualness and again, entitlement is what I'm saying about the way they navigated the school. Like, you know, of course, and like the classes, they they weren't thinking about 
parental sacrifices to send them there. They were just thinking, oh, I want to join the same eating club as my dad or my grandfather. Or, you know, I just want to chill out, make friends, make connections for my future, you know, career as a finance bro or whatever. And, you know, for them, it wasn't about like grinding it out and seeing this access to realms of power because they were already part of those realms of power. So that was really kind of shocking. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Julia Lee. She's the author of the memoir, Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America. Again, I remind you that this podcast will run in extended form. We're limited to 52 minutes if you're listening on the radio. So by all means, catch this the entirety of this show on podcast. Uh, Julia, what was it about uh, sorting and self-segregation that was so pronounced. I, I don't know if it was unique to Princeton or the Ivies, but you walk into this big gothic cafeteria, and I, I guess the, the analog is if you know you watch one of the Harry Potter movies about Hogwarts or something, you go and eat at Maddie or Rocky, one of the residential colleges, and you could just look at it and there was self-sorting. Broadly, there was an Asian table. There were African-American people sitting amongst themselves. There were the jocks. There were the blonde uh, sorority girls sitting amongst themselves. There were the loners and the various other people. And and the dining hall especially was a classist construct because you had, in our case, generous financial aid with mandatory dining plans. I think you were assigned, like I was, to a dining hall where either you were working behind and, and dishing out the slop or you were you were being served. I mean, talk to me about that experience and, and the sorting yeah, nature. Yeah, no, I, I think it's interesting you brought up the Hogwarts reference because, you know, I was listening to a podcast recently And, you know, they talk about how humans have this desire to sort, like we all have this inclination to want to find our group or our community and to self-sort, you know, and, you know, in Hogwarts, it's like, what house are you in? Oh, I'm Gryffindor. And then you feel connected to all the other Gryffindors. I mean, I get that and I understand that. And sometimes it can be the source of great positive energy, but it can also be incredibly destructive because, you know, part of college is exposing yourself to people who are not like yourself, you know, not surrounding yourself with people who are just like you. And, you know, the dining hall wasn't perfect, but at least you were all supposed to eat there your freshman and your sophomore years. But even there, you could still see the class differences because there were those of us who were on financial aid and who had to help cook or help serve or help clean up after our peers who were not on financial aid and who were there to be served. You know, and sometimes my friend Maria talks about how, you know, some of these bros, these jocks, you know, would just would would make fun of the workers, the student workers by dumping slop on their trays and then sending it through to the dish room and then laughing as these work study students are trying to clean their messy trays and getting the filth all over themselves. And so there was that. But even then, that was a, a huge improvement to the dining or sorry, the eating club situation, which 70% of students join an eating club in their junior and senior years. And that's really where I think the sorting becomes pernicious. Some of the clubs are not, are not uh, what do you call it? They don't demand that you rush or apply to get in, but half of them are, are these bigger clubs. And essentially, they will reject you if they don't think you fit their brand or that you're cool enough. And think about how awful that is, the sense that, yes, we live in a society where we're always being rejected or accepted and given opportunities, but now this is a situation of eating. Just wanting to eat with somebody is full of the same exclusion of these other things. And I remember I suffered a lot because, you know, I've always been a floater. I've always been the person who has friends in all kinds of different groups and backgrounds. And suddenly I couldn't 
eat with my friends. You know, if I did want to eat with them, I had to be specially invited as a guest on a particular day when outsiders were allowed in. And as a result, I felt like, oh my God, I'm now just eating by myself because I'm not part of one of these eating clubs and I don't have the money to pay their fees. And, you know, I was working as a resident advisor and so half my meals were covered by the dining hall. But the other half, you know, I remember just foraging for food and I probably had scurvy because I had to live off of bagels and pizza because that was the only thing I could afford with the small amount of money I was living on. And and I think that's sad and that it perpetuates the racial and class hierarchy everywhere else in our society. Mm. You know, I mean, I know other schools might have finals clubs like Harvard, but they don't have eating clubs. It's not as ubiquitous and as built into the system as it is at a place like Princeton. Something that I, I really do hope, I mean, it probably will never happen, but I do hope they get rid of it because it undermines the whole point of a university education and the access and inclusive element that all these schools are preaching, that they're trying to expand access to groups who have been historically foreclosed from these opportunities, you know? But then you get to a place like Princeton and you're just returned to that same exclusionary network and reminded once again, okay, you're allowed into the gates of a place like Princeton, but you can't eat you can't break bread. I mean, it's really community breaking bread. You cannot break bread with a whole bunch of people who think you're not good enough for them or that, you know, you don't fit into the type of person that they see as part of their group, as part of their dining club or their eating club or their don't see you as a social peer. Um, and that's deeply, deeply harmful. That wounds the psyche. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. A special shout out to our radio listeners on Radio IQ, WVTF, Virginia's NPR news station. Holler if you too would like us on your air. My DMs, alas, are always open. If you're just joining us, my guest is Professor Julia Lee. She's author of the memoir, Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America. We are in that stretch of your time at Princeton where I met you, and I want uh, to quote your experience, your reflection back on, on trying to be part of the selective eating clubs your junior and senior year and the rejection involved there. You wrote, I know college kids are insecure messes, desperate to fit in and belong, to remake themselves, and that kids who come from minoritized backgrounds feel this even more acutely. Still, I beat myself up for being seduced, for being duped. How dumb could I be? Why didn't I go where I was wanted? Why did I willingly put myself into this situation? I hate the person I once was. But then I remind myself, you were brainwashed. You were young. You were trying to survive. To break the wall, that's actually something I think about constantly. I wonder the kind of conversation I could have had with my 20-year-old self, assuming I could superimpose my 47-year-old brain and worldview on that. And that's kind of a, it's a dead end. You have to give yourself grace. You have to cut yourself slack. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, you know, I'll be honest that that was the hardest part of the book for me to write was the Princeton section. And it's funny because, you know, I talk about really painful, you know, shameful moments and, you know, moments where I come across not great. And but I was OK with so much of it, so much of the parts from childhood, you know. But no more than that, Julia, I think we just, again, breaking all sorts of walls here. We were just trying I to know. fit in. 
We were trying. We were trying. There's nothing wrong, and we may have tasted that by senior year when there was an eclectic group of us who would, you know, meet and go out to restaurants and sample. I remember it was you and Sandia and Maria and a handful of people, and we were just on the brink of understanding that, the sobriety of not having to pursue popularity or someone else's construct of popularity for popularity's sake. And in reading this book and in going back and thinking back to, you know, you should have been able to hold your head high. If you think about the the sacrifices your grandfather made, right, to cross the DMZ and not get shot at, the traumas of your parents and everything. But how could you have known? How could you have known to show up there and say, I'm going to hold my head up high? You just wanted to belong. You just wanted to be with other people. And the system resisted that diversification. I mean, the same eating club corridor, it's, it's laughable to think about it now, but it culminated in a building that was popular with uh, students of color called the Third World Center. Could you believe that? Now, in hindsight, I mean, just from a branding perspective, there are all these exclusive eating clubs that cost like five, six thousand dollars, eight thousand dollars a year, and they would throw fancy formals. And some of the students who couldn't afford or didn't want to be part of that were part of the Third World Center. And so, I mean, to kind of square all that with the 2023 reality of, and, and self-segregation is going to happen. Um, I, I'm amazed at, at all the people who uh, withstood traumas to get there and all the other people who were there as legacies who just kind of, it was just, it was just the station along the way. Everything else was preordained for them. Yeah. I mean, so much entitlement among so many groups of people. And I, yeah, I do wonder, I'm like, Wow. Why was I, but I guess I was conditioned to always feel like, oh, I'm just abjectly grateful to be allowed into this space. And instead of holding my head up high and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I'm proud because I got here based on something more than, you know, my last name or the fact that my dad has a endowed a building or the fact that my grandfather went to this school, you know, I should look at those people with pity because they're just entitled and they didn't have to lift a finger to get here. But instead, I saw it as my own inferiority that I couldn't just gel with them and blend with them and belong like they did. And, you know, I I did see some people of color, you know, oftentimes Asian Americans who came from wealthy backgrounds who were able to assimilate and to join these clubs and to seem to have no issue. But, you know, I would look at them and I'd think, wow, I thought this person was supposed to be kin to me. And yet... They are very much not like me because, again, it's not just about race. It's not just about gender. It's not just about sexuality. It's about class. And, you know, all of these studies show that the majority of these students at these fancy elite schools come from, you know, the top 10% socioeconomically. And so, yes, you might feel marginalized because you may not be white, but, you know, it helps assimilation if you come from a wealthy background and you have you know, access to the vacations or the resources, you know, you don't feel as out of place in that way. I mean, the Third World Center, you're right. I mean, I remember reflecting on that. And, you know, the Third World Center was meant to be this radical space of coalition building among students of color. And then as both of us, both of us being resident advisors, the incidents of among really privileged people of anorexia, bulimia, the various traumas, we were warned. I mean, people might know this, not know this, the, they warn resident advisors in colleges that the Monday after Thanksgiving is referred to as Black Monday because many students come back, no shortage of students come back, their parents wait to tell them they're getting a divorce and or the long distance partner breaks up with them. 
And uh, just the, I don't remember mental health being bandied about at all when we were in college. I don't remember having a resource. I just thought that roughing it out was the way to go. We did have rough, you know, LGBT or sexual harassment training, but I don't recall a mental health resource. I just thought that this was the way it was supposed to feel. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that is something that has changed dramatically from the time when we were there to today, because I look at the way in which my own children speak so much more openly and frankly about their mental health struggles. And there's just less of a stigma against it as there was when we were there. I mean, I think I was trained in the school of you suck it up because, you know, your parents have it so much worse. Your grandparents have it so much worse. There's incredible stigma against mental health within the Korean community. And so, you know, my parents just uh, you know, we didn't even have health insurance. How the hell was I supposed to say, hey, I want to see a therapist on, um, you know, maybe go on meds. I mean, this was just not, not even a possibility. And today I, I'm grateful. I mean, I know that rates of mental health distress are increasing and no surprise. Well, on this, on the subject of mental health, you could keep up this, let's call it a charade or whatever it was, this seeking this holy grail, sublimation through accomplishment, vindicating your mom and dad, even through college, even after I say that, that you know, hard won sobriety by the end of college, still you took a manage, prestigious management consulting job and I took a brokerage job. I recall we both detested these jobs. For all of the flaws of the sorting system, you were still able to show up at an interview. The, the, the most prestigious companies would take over the hotel in town and there'd be fondue night, there'd be sushi night. You could literally make a whole dining calendar of, of these people coming up and, and genuflecting before you to take these jobs, which inevitably stunk. But they were great stepping stones to wealth and that that catapulting to New York or LA or San Francisco, wherever you wanted to. But after you realized that this was the wrong turn for you at about six months at this consulting firm, you suffered you suffered a nervous break. Yeah. I mean And the ultimate shame for you was, gosh, I got I'm I'm poor. I don't know what to do. I gotta go home and live with mom and dad again. And I I found myself crying when reading this in your book. Uh, because I imagine it's much must be far more widespread than a lot of our contemporaries let on. Right. I mean, you think, oh gosh, I've I've captured the golden ring. The golden ring being this secure, prestigious job on Wall Street or in consulting, and you know now I've got it made. And oftentimes these firms they don't even look at you if you don't come from an Ivy League, say, kind of school. And so the access, the privilege, this club that you're now a part of, and then. You're right, like the amplitude of like fancy meals and dining and whining and and trips. And, you know, I remember getting a gift basket when I first got my job offer and thinking, oh, my God, you know, here's this amazing present. And also I'm going to be making more money than my parents have ever made. And this is amazing. And then you go into this job and you think, oh, wait, you know, I don't agree with, I mean, first of all, the hours are brutal and the travel is brutal. And then you also realize, you know, sometimes there are some ethical issues with the stuff that you're doing. You know, it's about making money, which is fine. We all live in a capitalist world. But also, you know, what about the ethical decisions we're making? You know, people are losing their jobs. There are some shady things that are happening. The head of my consulting firm ended up being busted for insider trading, and he's now in prison. And you think, what am I upholding here? And also, you know, why do I want this so bad? Is this really what I have been working my whole life for? So the moment when I decided to step away was so 
frightening for me because I was turning my back on everything I had been told I should be aiming for. And what it taught me is something that, you know, I mean, I'm now in academia. This is not a, a highly remunerative career. But what I realized is that for me, at least, you know, making a, a ton of money is not my primary, you know, motivating factor that in fact, you know, I need to find some sense of purpose and meaning beyond that. And, you know, if the American dream is like making a million bucks, that's not my American dream. And especially not when it hurts people I know and love. And also when it perpetuates inequalities and working at some of these firms, you see, you know, racism and sexism up close. And, you know, these places are are reflections of the injustices in our whole country. And that was really eye-opening for me. But absolutely, you know, at that point, I I quit my job and I just spent a lot of time, you know, sleeping and, you know, I would hang out with my friend, you know, Eileen, who was also kind of burnt out from this long journey of achievement. And I, I just, I also think about, you know, it was welcoming me into a world that I thought, wow, I'm now past the gates. I'm sitting at this table and you know what? The food's not very good and the company's terrible. <laughs> and like, why did I work so hard to be here when I don't like these people? I mean, for the first time in my life, I was eating at fancy restaurants. And at first I didn't know what fork to use. And I didn't know how to order off the menu because I grew up never going to restaurants because we couldn't afford to. And now suddenly we were going to these fancy fine dining establishments where you know, the check was always being paid by the client and I didn't even look twice and I just expensed everything. And yet it was so hollow. I have to read from the section with your friend you reunited with, Eileen. Uh, she went to Harvard from your high school. And when you both are in a valley in your lives and in, in a depressive state, um, in a broken state and kind of lost, rudderless, uh, you reunite in Koreatown. Let me read about this. During the time of your breakdown after that management consulting job after college, you write, I'd often meet up with my friend Eileen, a fellow burnout. She'd been born in Korea but moved to the States when she was seven. Her parents were divorced, a rarity in those days, and the children had been divvied up. Eileen went with her mother. Her younger sister and brother went with her father. For the next 10 years, she had zero contact with her siblings and father, effectively becoming an only child. Her mother remarried, and she and Eileen's stepfather ran a liquor store and then a small market. As a teen, Eileen would help out at the liquor store, watching older white girls from our high school stroll in with their fake IDs to buy cigarettes and beer. Each time her parents accepted their IDs, she knew they were risking their liquor license, while the underage girls were risking nothing more than a slap on the wrist. During the L.A. uprising, she watched as gas stations and stores went up in flames just blocks from her apartment in Koreatown. Her parents were miles away in Long Beach trying to lock up their market while customers pleaded to be let in so they could stock up on food and other necessities. At our high school, where she was on scholarship, Eileen was a standout, a gifted artist, the only Asian girl on the varsity volleyball team, a champion debater, and a member of student council. Returning home from a debate tournament one evening, still giddy with excitement, she could immediately sense that something was wrong. Her mother informed her that they were headed to the hospital because her stepfather had been shot in a robbery. Eileen felt her elation turn into a guilt so crushing that she began to cry. While she'd been enjoying herself at the tournament, her parents had been risking their lives. When Eileen got into Harvard, it was as if everything, the divorce, the family separation, the shootings, the riots, had been worth it. She had made all her mother's sacrifices worthwhile. The story was supposed to end there on a note of triumph, a nice, tidy, model minority fairy tale. But mental health is the casualty of the American dream. 
and it will catch up with you eventually. Halfway through college, Eileen's mother and stepfather divorced. Eileen found herself coming apart, rebelling against her mother in a way she'd never dared to in high school. For the first time, she admitted to her mother that she'd been sexually abused by her stepfather. She stopped going to class. Her grades plunged. She didn't hand in papers and failed a bunch of classes. Placed on academic probation, she was asked, told, to take a year or two off school to get her crap together. When she told her mother she was coming home, her mother's response was, What will I tell my friends? What will they think? She moved back home into a small duplex on the border of Koreatown where her mother now lived. We took to meeting up regularly to smoke and drink coffee. Eileen was always late, and not just by a few minutes, but by a few hours. Sometimes she fell asleep and forgot to set the alarm. Other times she just couldn't muster up the energy to get out of bed. It didn't bother me. Punctuality now seemed trivial without the structure of school or work. And then, I mean, the end result, you say, is that the same. We were all drunk, unemployed, underemployed, depressed, and eating huevos rancheros at Swingers at four in the morning. That is unbelievable candor and unbelievable uh, convergence of super high achievers, people whose parents, you know, you'd hear legends, I bet, about Eileen right. still at your school. And the the reality, the shadow and the persona of all of it. Talk to me about that era. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, so many of us, like we use overachievement to push us forward. And then at a certain point, it's not sustainable. You cannot continue to work twice as hard and be twice as good without there being some negative consequence, it's specifically on mental health, if not physical health. And, you know, that's what happened to my friend Eileen. And you know, the irony is that we were trying to survive in the way that our parents were telling us to survive, in the way that the Korean newspapers and the model minority myth were telling us we needed to survive, which was by hustling and working and struggling and making our parents' sacrifices all worthwhile. But then at a certain point, the wheels start coming off. And, you know, I remember my mother, I mean, she absolutely you know, thought there were only two paths ahead of me, either incredible overachievement and um, success in that Ivy League, you know, sort of fairy tale, or I was going to end up, you know, rolling with the Korean gang and I would end up in juvie or in prison. And, you know, she knew people, she had friends whose kids ended up on that path because, you know, the parents are working, they're never around. The kids are desperate for a sense of belonging and community because they feel invisible, they feel marginalized. And so they too are trying to survive in a system that is not set up to help them thrive. And really, you know, my friend Eileen, her sister, that was the path her sister took. Her sister did not go to college. Her sister's a meth addict, still is a meth addict. Her sister worked as a hostess in Koreatown. And you could easily say, oh, she's the bad Korean and Eileen is the good Korean. But really, we were all the same. We were Asian American, Korean American women trying to survive and trying to shore up our mental health in a system that was antagonistic to that, that, that was actually harmful. And, you know, whether it was through drinking or through drugs or through overachievement or workaholism, we were constantly trying to plug this hole because we were trying to survive in a society, society that was constantly telling us we were not enough, not sufficient. And, you know, is it no surprise that it's not sustainable and that we eventually do burn out or end up, you know, in some cases killing ourselves? I mean, the suicide rate among Korean Americans, it's, you know, the highest of any ethnicity, you know, and part of that for some Koreans, it's the, the stressors of immigration. But for others, it's 
you know, buckling under the strain of social expectations, parental expectations, cultural expectations. Um, And for some of us, that might mean, oh, my gosh, I just want to kill myself. And that's one of the tragedies. You know, Julia, the big the big hinge moment in our lives and you got into it in the book is when we became parents. And maybe you want to expound upon it, but the the paradox here of coming out of depression, uh, you know, having a child uh, suffering from postpartum depression. In my case, I think it disabused me of a lot of my the effort to sublimate through accomplishment. I saw so much of myself in my son's countenance when he was born, and I, yeah, I don't want to make this about me, but I stopped running. I stopped running, I stopped faking it, and I just wanted to be with him all the time. And moreover, and this is where it really daggered me reading your book, I just wanted my parents to hold him. And when your mother, yeah, I, yeah. I'm trying to keep yeah. it together in discussing this part, but when you lost your temper at your daughter uh, for roughhousing with her brother and he had to get stitched up and everything. Your mother, who was rough around you, who mm-hmm. taught you the rough and tumble, who was only kind of brass tacks with you growing up, protected your daughter. And you really took it full circle. Yeah, Tell me no, about it's so that. so hard. I mean, especially having children, that is a transformative moment. I mean, right? I didn't even want to have children for a long time because I thought, oh my gosh, the intergenerational trauma, it's too much. It This ends here. I am not going to perpetuate this this um, unhappiness for another generation. And yet, you know, in a moment of optimism and hope, I decided to have children. And that really became a way of healing some of the rifts and the pain between my mother and me. You know, my mother loved me the best way that she could, but it was a punishing, brutal kind of love, you know, and she did it because she knew, you know, she was tough with me because she knew what I would face in the outside world would be even tougher And so in some ways, that brutality was an act of love. And yet, you know, in so many ways, I tried to imitate her. I'm mimicking the way I was parented and the way I parent my daughter. And I, too, wanted her to grow up to be tough and resilient and not spoiled. And, you know, I want her to be able to survive in a sometimes very inhospitable world. And yet sometimes that can end up being brutal and harsh in a way that my mother, now that she's a grandmother, sees for what it is. And so she will stop me and say, no, don't be brutal to your daughter. It's not worth it. I have seen the consequences of some of my brutality on you. And I want my granddaughter to love me. And I want, in many ways, she wants to heal the rift between the two of us through this relationship with my daughter. And it's been really beautiful because my daughter and my mother are very similar in many ways. But I can look at my daughter with love and forgiveness and grace that I was really not able to show my mother for many years. And in the same way, my mother is able to look at me and look at my daughter with the same forgiveness and grace that she was not able to show before. And and you are you teach African American literature and this has been a through line in it when you meet people of who came of age during Jim Crow and segregation and when lynches the lynching there was largely solitary neglect and looking the other way the way of conveying love like to 1940s or 1950s child was and and people have told me this was getting a whooping by your parents 
as a favor to kind of make put you in your place so that you don't get cornered by a, a racist sheriff or a lynch mob. Um, and that and the, how that through line continues now, how that collective trauma continues to grandkids and everybody right now in this era. And, and I, you know, in, in your line of work, looking at how Rodney King and George Floyd just triggered people and reminded everyone that you can't take your eye off that. That's something that we still have to be paranoid mm-hmm. about. Paranoia. You talk about your mom's paranoia when you visit Korea and you come back and she thought she was being watched. And I'm just struck really by the universality of all this. I think I'm at a loss yeah. for words uh, in, in terms of why people need to read this book. Um, yeah, the author of Saigon say, this memoir brims with wit, intelligence, vulnerability, and delicious rage. Whip smart and iconoclastic, Julia takes her readers on her journey through America and academia coast to coast as she grows up and obliterates all the stereotypes into which she has been forced. The result is a perfect distillation of scholarship, lived experience, and a revolutionary call for the liberation of all peoples. I'm going to let you close us out, Julia. And I know this is cliche, but I run this exercise in my head constantly every night with the PTSD of my late teens and early 20s. What would you say to yourself as that scared girl at Princeton? What would you say to yourself with the mind of uh, seasoned, chastened 47-year-old you? Right. I mean, I would tell, you know, it is, it's like wanting to connect and to put my hand on her shoulder and to tell her that she's not alone, that I'm here and that I feel her pain and that I see her and that she's not wrong to feel this way. She shouldn't sublimate because these feelings are authentic and they're real and they're important. I mean, one of the things that I have found so rewarding about writing this book, you know, which writing, as you know, is such a solitary activity and exercise, and then you send it out to the world and you know, you don't know if it's going to connect. You don't know if that thread of hope, of grace that you cast out to the anonymous abyss of the public, you don't know if it's going to land. You don't know if it's going to connect with somebody. And lately I've been getting just emails from readers, people who are similar to me, but people who are very different from me telling me, wow, I read your book and I understand so much better my own relationship to my mother or, you know, my own experience of assimilation and marginality. Um, I had a letter from an 83-year-old reader who is a refugee from World War II. And, you know, she's suffered through a different war. And, you know, her relationship with her mother has also been incredibly fraught. And she told me that reading my book helped her to finally forgive her mother and to understand the legacy of trauma in her life. And I just thought, oh, my gosh. You know, the thread of this book is catching in unexpected ways and with unexpected readers. And for me, just feeling alone, you know, my readers help me feel like I'm not alone. And hopefully my book will help them feel like they're not alone. Julia Lee, we are overdue. The book is Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America, a memoir. Julia Lee is a professor of English at Loyola Marymount University, where she teaches African-American and Caribbean literature. The next round of uh, Banchan and uh, Cholo Kebab is on me in Terangelis. How's that? <laughs> awesome. You got to come out to LA. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fulldradio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry full disclosure on your air. 
Joining me from Miami is Mitchell Kaplan. He is the owner and founder of the venerable Books and Books chain. It opened back in 1982, the first location in a small 500 square foot space in Coral Gables, Florida, stone's throw from the University of Miami. He is also the founder of the celebrated Miami Book Fair, which is the biggest in the country. It's launched many competitors. I was a veteran of both uh, the Miami Book Fair. I, I debuted my book there in 2017 and Books and Books, the flagship in the Gables. How are you, sir? I'm good, Robin. It's so great to be with you yet again. I mean, 2017, it seems like just a blink. A so blink. much has happened since then, right? 40 years ago, you launched the Miami Book Fair. And 41 years ago in 1982, Books and Books. Now, here's the paradox. I'm a child of Miami. It's not known as a literary town necessarily, but there'd be this huge force of gravity every autumn with the Miami Book Fair and the entire nation, C-SPAN trucks, CBS This Morning, everybody would descend on the place. If you had a book, you wanted to present it at the Miami Book Fair. And here you are at a crossroads now in 2023, really at the nexus of the culture wars where uh, the, the state has turned decidedly red and an individual parent in Dade County or Broward County or Palm Beach or wherever in South Florida, if he or she wants to take a book off the bookshelves in the library, can protest and it can be remaindered. And you reacted to that. We did. We had a, um, last week, we had this phenomenal gathering at the Carl Gables Congregational Church, another institution here in Miami, which actually bills itself as a sanctuary for banned books as well. So we had this event there. And what sparked it, we had this this band, this event pushing back on uh, three books that are still in print that were banned from the Bob Graham, ironically, K through eight school. And I say ironically because Robin, you and I both know Bob Graham is one of the great senators and governors. And governors, right? Yeah, and it, this school was named after him in Miami Lakes. Uh, the school system doesn't say it was banned. They say it was restricted, which is true. It had restricted <clears throat> access. But everything you say is true too, Robin, that it, with the new law that, that has been passed, one parent can come in, challenge a book. The book is then pulled from circulation until a committee rules on whether that book ought to be taken out of circulation or if something else should happen with those books. I apologize. Well, your your dog, dog is obviously not in right favor there. of this. So hey, the pool guy is here. I think. <laughs> no, easy, easy, it's okay. So what what occurred was that a committee was formed, and they decided that these three books, ought to, which are written, well, two of them were written for elementary age kids. The third one was Amanda Gorman's uh, poem. Uh, during the inauguration. Yeah, National Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman. One of the banned yeah. books was The Hill We Climb. She performed uh, uh, some of the poetry at President Biden's 2021 inauguration. She read that poem at the inauguration. Right. That was yanked out of that elementary school library and it was put into the middle school. Mitchell, what does it mean when something like that is pilloried by a parent as indoctrination or there's this amorphous kind of woke, you know, there was this boogeyman of critical race theory and brainwashing our children. You've seen it across the 50 states, a backlash, uh, things roughly uh, after the George Floyd murder in 2020, that there was this backlash and a backlash to the backlash. Yeah, well, 
to me, it's very cynical. It's performative. What you have is you have these politicians who feel like they have an issue that they can hang their hat on in order to galvanize a very small sliver of the kind of Republican electorate. And I think that's really what we're seeing. I, you know, it's circular. Judy Bloom, who I've got a bookshop with in Key West, says to me, uh, she was one of the most banned authors in the 70s and 80s, and she says to me that it's worse now than it's ever been. So again, it's a political issue which is being used simply to galvanize, like all of the cultural issues are. The whole focus on transgender athletes, the focus on gay and lesbian restrictions in the law, drag shows, that sort of thing. This is all an attempt, really a very cynical attempt to drive people apart. One thing I don't understand, Mitchell, and you know, I've covered the Cuban-American experience in some of my reporting, is that how exile population, how this is an anathema to so much of the Cuban-American population in uh, uh, South Florida, which is you know, detesting the time since Fidel Castro came to power and no shortage of media has been banned in their homeland. But this is something that still sells. This is something that you saw Trump came to Cafe Versailles on, on, uh, in Calle Ocho in the middle of ha Little Havana. He's hugely popular there. DeSantis, the governor of the state and the Stop Woke Act, is considered potentially an heir apparent in the GOP. I think about the immigrant populations there who've always invade, and many Cuban-American authors you've had against censorship and uh, the creeping kind of uh, panopticon government state. Again, what has happened here, uh, and, and also, you know, you and I, Robin, both being from South Florida, know that Cuban-American community here is not monolithic. There are lots of voices speaking out against this. There's, a, there's actually a group called Moms Against Ban Libros, and they've been fighting it very hard, a, a Cuban-American group. However, what we also know, those of us who live here, is that there are certain kinds of words, certain kinds of phrases that galvanize people. And what's happened is using the word socialist and communist kind of trumps, so to speak, the whole notion of banned books. So you can see even now what Trump is doing in his defense of these latest charges is he's calling them, it's an example of a communist, you know, there are communists who are doing this. And, and it's just fraught with, um, no, it's illogical. And so what you bring up is completely illogical. There should be no reason why the Cuban-American community or any member of the immigrant community that comes from a dictatorship where people have been banning books and controlling what's happening on their, in their homeland, none of them should be in favor of these rules and these new laws. But they are, and they are because the, the fear uh, being stoked is greater on the other side. So that's really what's going on. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Mitchell Kaplan of Books and Books, the famous bookseller chain that started in South Florida a little more than 40 years ago. He's also head of the Miami Book Fair, which the entire world seems to descend on downtown Miami for a few days in the autumn every year, which is celebrating its 40th year. We're talking about the backlash to the backlash in terms of the Stop Woke Act and the various uh, 
creeping book bans that you can experience now in Florida. Talk to me about relations with uh, teachers and librarians. If they see you in the Gables in South Florida as a kind of a font of freedom, as a receptacle, you are a connector. So, for example, your proximity to Judy Bloom or Amanda Gorman or every single publisher out there, every single author, you can't be banned as easily. You are a hub and spoke, an airport, if you will, of literary talent. Well, indie bookstores across the country have been proponents of the freedom to read. And you can't ban books. Fortunately, you know, what we're talking about is not banning books in a bookstore. I mean, that, you know, they tried that in Virginia where you are. Right. And it didn't quite work. Uh, So that still is a bit beyond the pale. But we have to protect, you know, we have to protect our democracy. And that's what this is all about. If you ask me about the reaction here, there's a huge pushback, huge. It was, it was quiet. It was, it was fractured. We had this event. Over 500 people came. We gave out 1,200 of the banned books for free. We had teachers. We had librarians. We had uh, members of the community that were very prominent, members of the Cuban-American community, members of every community. So there is a kind of organized pushback that is beginning right now. People were deflated by the fear that, that these very, very, very vague laws created. And you will see, I think, this not taking hold ultimately in Florida. This is not a winning issue for DeSantis or for any of these guys who are doing this. It didn't win in the last election, these culture wars. And I don't think it's going to win again. The reason why Florida really went more red than ever really was a matter of getting out the vote. Uh, 60% of Republicans voted, 40% of Democrats voted. We really need to make sure that the vote, that there's a more of an organized effort to get out the vote. And to be honest, these culture issues galvanize people, and I think they're going to be very sorry that they went down this road to begin. Now, you include in your roster of other banned books, I mean, I can't believe it, Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, like staple high school reading for me. That's part of the canon. Mouse by Art Spiegelman. I Am Billie Jean King by Brad Meltzer, fellow North Miami Beach High School graduate. The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, among many others. Uh, for those of us studying history, there, you know, history, as I like to say, as everybody likes to say, rhymes. There have been periods where worries about sedition or communism or other things resulted in books being taken out, authors being taken out. I'm thinking about the Red Scare. I'm thinking about periods where Unfortunately, this was collateral damage. The freedom that you have today that you're flexing is the product of centuries of kind of struggle and uh, confrontation and brinksmanship with people who wanted to ban books. History is not linear, unfortunately, Robin. We don't solve a problem and then move on, which has been a big revelation to so many of us. As you point out, history is circular. And what we're, having, what we're seeing is uh, a repeat, uh, and in some ways it's even worse of things that have happened in the past. I mean, you know, you talk about what, you know, from the McCarthy period, there was the free speech movement in Berkeley in the early 60s. You know, Allen Ginsberg had to fight in order to be able, after he read Howell, you know, at City Lights. So this thing is circular. But that is how we keep our democracy, is by being very vigilant. And so when we see something that is an attack on one of our basic and fundamental rights, we need to make sure we fight it. And I think that's what I'm discovering 
even being the old guy that I am, I'm learning new tricks and learning new things. And one of the things I'm learning is the fight for our basic civil liberties never really ends. It never really does. So we just have to use whatever perch we have, whatever voice we have to make sure that we can push back. You know, Mitchell from the sidelines is a, you know, my book again came out six years ago, was on Miami, Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. I remember like when this press first started happening with the Stop Woke Act and and Governor DeSantis, I kind of wanted my book to get banned because in social media circles, by banning something, you make it seem so exotic and other, like I'm thinking about critical race theory and AP African-American history. Like now with remote schooling, Mitchell, you know, nobody can come in and stick a thumb on your Zoom connection or the various other ways. You can engage an author and have a book party remotely and have hundreds and hundreds of South Floridians and, and people from overseas even patch in. It's just much harder to put the kibosh on a voice. Thankfully, that's the case. And, you know, you're absolutely right, Robin. They, they, I wish they would have banned your book. We, we <laughs> both would have been... I would have been able to put my kids through preschool again uh, with the sale of your book. We I mean, wanted to so actually, cool. you know, a couple of ex-cons who came to the book launch in the Gables, they they asked me if like, do you want us to stage a fake gunfight between exiles and everything? Maybe get the Miami <laughs> oh, Herald and God. others to cover it. We could have done that. Remember like Pirate's World. Right, we right. But the fact of the matter is Mouse became a bestseller again. Amanda Gorman's book, The Hill We Climb, is a bestseller right now because of the book ban. They call that the Streisand that- effect, I guess, roughly in literary circles now, where I guess, you know, Barbara Streisand tried to ban paparazzi with choppers and everything from getting footage of her wedding back in the day, and it all, it only caused more curiosity of her compound and her estate. And, and, and when you try to ban something, it only puts it in sharper relief and makes more people take notice. Oh, most definitely. We, you know, we know that banning Banning anything never works. Banning a thought, banning an idea, banning anything never, never works. So it's a, it's a fool's game that they're playing, but we still have to be vigilant. And I thank people like you for bringing this to the broader attention of everyone else. Mitchell, in the five minutes or so I have with you, I got to ask you about the business because it's so paradoxical. We're starting to see after uh, relentless expansion of Amazon, and this was the initial industry that that it disrupted, this behemoth, which is now one of the largest corporations on the planet. People forget it initially came after books, and there used to be the thriving infrastructure of Walden books, Borders. Barnes & Noble is actually making a bit of a comeback. I've had Fountain Books and other indies on the show. You actually stand out as one of the the OGs, the last of the really thriving independents. There's something that you do, especially with the flagship in Coral Gables on Miracle Mile, where it's it's just this oasis, this literary oasis. You can come in, get a sandwich, soup. You could see people. You could get books. And that stands out in a, in a town again, which is not known as a literary town. What is it that you've done to thrive in the, in the era of Amazon? Well, a couple things. One is, thankfully, Miami has become a literary town, which is really great. The other thing that's happening, which I'm really, really excited about, is young people are rediscovering place. They're rediscovering the local independent third place after work, after home. I think the pandemic had a lot to do with that. People were cooped up in their homes. Young people felt stunted in terms of their connection with each other. Coming to a bookstore all of a sudden makes you connect with other folks. The other thing that is really true, I think, 
is the reason why bookstores, indie bookstores, as well as the book has persevered is because in many ways there's nothing more perfect than the book, right? The book is a really, really perfect thing. And nothing electronic can really supplant it, I don't think. And you can't really have a cup of coffee when you're you know, inside the Amazon analytic, right? You can't really meet other people in the same way online that you can in person. That, along with this incredible rediscovery of all things analog, is terrific. I mean, you know, vinyl records are beginning right. to explode. The book is still very, very uh, strong. I look around the store now, and I see young faces in a way that I never did before. It's not just a function of me getting older, and everyone is younger, but there truly are younger people coming in droves to bookstores. We used to have a joke in the in the book business we say that we were going to be following our customers to their graves that the last the last reader would sort of die and we'd have to close our lights and and close our stores but i am now extremely hopeful that there is going to be that next generation not only of readers but also of book buyers now we know that there's nothing that compares to and and you are in the arch center in the former Sears building in downtown Miami by the former Omni I mean well, we used to be there we're not, we're there, not there anymore, anymore. was it Coconut Grove the keys yeah we opened up in Coconut Grove we're in we're in Bal Harbor shops Coconut Grove, Carl Gables, and we opened a store up in Pinecrest. But be honest. I mean, when we get to the nitty-gritty of the business, is about is it about kind of the the gravitational pull of books, but then ultimately they're sitting down at the cafe, it's a meeting it's place. It's all about it's community. A... It's about the gravitational pull of community. It's about being in a place where you can see your neighbors, you can meet people, you can meet new people. Plus, we put on over, you know, three, four hundred events a year which gives people the opportunity to come in and yet again interact with people they wouldn't normally meet, people like you, people like others who have books out, and they can engage in civil discourse. It's all about civil discourse. It's about empathy. It is about community. It's about all of those things. And it's being rediscovered is what's happening. Now, I know it's not perfect, and certainly there's no shortage of Zoom fatigue in this country, but for a while, especially in those of us that had more lockdown-intensive municipalities and states, and I know that wasn't the case in Florida, there was lots learned uh, in terms of the remote revolution over the last three years. There are things you could do now, author events, if there was a person in Switzerland. How do you, I know this gets to, maybe you don't want to sully your hands on it, but how do you get this as a business? Do you sell tickets and maybe the book? to several hundred people who want to show up and see you interview an author? I mean, how do you use it as an opportunity when you can't fly that person necessarily to Miami oh, International? Well, we, you know, during the pandemic, we had to pivot very, very significantly. And we went from, I, I didn't, I had never heard of Zoom or, or Riverside yeah. or any of these things. And in the course of just a month or two, and Florida was locked down. It's a myth that it wasn't, but it was locked down. Uh, we did like 500 virtual author events during COVID. And we did very cool things. We had like Neil Gaiman in New Zealand, and we had Ishiguru in London, and the two spoke to each other online, you know, for an evening. And during the height of virtual events, it was really, really potent and really, really strong. What's happened is with with places opening up and with, real uh, physical in-person author events, 
Uh, those virtual events are losing some of its potency. But what is happening are things like what you and I are doing, which is uh, becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's the whole world of podcasting, the world of talking to each other in the way that we are. Uh, that's really growing more and more. People still ultimately want to see an author live and in person if they're going to purchase a book. Uh, the business model for virtual events um, is not as strong as it once was, and it's beginning to lose some of its, uh, some of its novelty, I think. Mitchell, I got to tell you, you have the voice of a great therapist. I feel like I should give you a co-payment for this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm grateful to you because when I was uh, a terrified first-time author with a skeleton of a book proposal, and you were very calming. You and your wife had me there at the Gables. You got me a soup. You got me a sandwich. You introduced me to your son, and you said, just write it. Just write it, Robin. And I did. And I, I when I had the book launch at Books and Books in the Gables, and my elementary school teacher was in the front row and every ex-con in Miami and former police chief was there it was definitely stranger than fiction it was one of the one of the victory laps of my life and I'm grateful to you for being a torchbearer for that well Robin I I don't want to put you on the on the spot but I, and for those of you listening out there um Robin's book continues to be one of books and books's best-selling books ever and so putting you on the spot is when are you going to write your next one? We want you to. <laughs> it's like to Mitchell, as you one. know, as authors will tell you, it's like passing a kidney stone. I mean, I I'm gr grateful to a bit of, to be a writer, but actually writing it is there's quite a bit of PSD and repression. Again, you're my therapist, right? <laughs> well, Gary Steingart has an article about that about how writing a novel is hard. Um, but you really that book captured, and I lived through it. You captured it so perfectly. And there are very few books like that. There's another book that you probably know, The Year of Dangerous Days yes, by Nick. Yes, we've Nicholas had him on the Griffin. show. We love it. Those two books, if you read those two books alone, you will have such a sense of the history of Miami and why Miami is the way it is now. Well, I promise you, Mitchell, I will write another book and, and stay alive long enough so I can write it on your couch uh, with your mellifluous voice kind of guiding me through the recording. Mitchell Kaplan of Books and Books and the Miami Book Fair, fighting the creeping book bans of South Florida. Please, 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 sir, do come back on the show. You are always welcome. Thank you, Robin. It's been a real pleasure. Full disclosure, reminder that you can hear the entirety of this special extended episode wherever you get your podcasts, be it NPR, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. The link there is fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. And message me if you'd like to carry full disclosure on your air. Special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business. Stay tuned for news of big live shows resuming in the fall of 2023. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The handle is Full D Radio. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. <laughs>